There was a big hit from um, Rick, by Rick Nelson, and I'm going to see if you can tell the words. I'll recite some of them. A line goes like this. But it's all right now. I've learned my lesson well. You see, you can't please everyone, so you've got to. Oh, you know it. You can't please everyone, so you got to please yourself. And of course, we learned that lesson very, very well. So well that I went online yesterday and typed into the search engine Google, um, love yourself. And I couldn't believe how many books came up with that title. Not only are many entitled Love Yourself or Love Yourself First, but there's the Self-Love Journal and the Self-Love Workbook and Learn to Love Yourself Again. These are all book titles. Then Radical Self-Love and Love Yourself Happy. And on and on it goes. Hundreds and hundreds of books on this topic. And so I thought, well, I need to learn more. So I typed into the search engine, Love Yourself Quotes. And the first one that came up was Lucille Ball. Here she said, love yourself first and everything else will fall into line. You really have to love yourself to get anything done in this world. And then Teresa Collins, you can never meet your potential until you truly learn to love yourself. And this one, her name is Alyssa B. Schimmel. You have to learn to love yourself before you can love someone else because it's only when we love ourselves that we feel worthy of someone else's love. And another quote, if you want to be happy, love yourself endlessly. Or another one, love yourself the way you are. You're, you are good enough. You are worthy. You deserve your own love. Now, as you know, that's probably one of the most common mantras in our entire culture. And there is, of course, some truth to it. And of course, if someone has what we would call low self-esteem or a poor self-concept, it's hard to function well when you think of yourself so, so poorly. There is truth to that. However, interestingly in the Bible, um, the Bible assumes that we love ourselves. <laughs> that that's not one of the answers many times. It's one of the problems is that we do love ourselves. And in fact, if your worldview is Life consists of only what we have during our short time on this planet. And if that's true, they're right. You can't please everybody, so please yourself. That's the way to live your life. Please yourself. Live your life for yourself because that's all you've got. You only go around once in life, so you better grab for all the gusto you can get because that's all we've got. Now, as you know, that is not what the Bible says. And in fact, the Bible would say that is not the route to happiness. The route to happiness is quite, quite different than that. And so today we're going to look at the third installment of the Apostle Paul's teaching on the subject of unity in a church where people do not agree with each other. Now, if you're in a church where everyone agrees with you about everything, or if you're in a marriage where everyone, each side always agrees with the other, it's peaceful, kind of boring, but it's peaceful. But interestingly, if people always agree with you all the time, you never grow because you never have to change. And in fact, if people always agree with you all the time, you never become a disciple of Jesus Christ, by the way, because one of the greatest tests and one of the most important things we can ever learn as disciples of Jesus in the context of a church is to love people who are different than us. And in fact, 
we are one of the only institutions in the world where one of our fundamental principles is we need to love people we don't even like. Now, most clubs don't work that way. You put together your rules and you say, these are the rules, and if the people don't fit the rules, you kick them out. The church doesn't do that. You can't do that. And so we've been looking at, for the last, um, so this, for, this is our third week, the subject of unity in the church at Rome. Now remember, Rome is the largest city in the world when this was written. The only city in the world for more than a thousand years now that's over a million people. It's a huge city. It's the center of an enormous empire. Paul writes this letter to this church at Rome. And in this church, it's composed of both Jews and Gentiles. You think, so what? Well, that's a problem. That's an enormous problem on a variety of fronts. But in this, because they're Jews and Gentiles in the same church, there are three huge problems. There are really probably 30 or 300 problems, but three huge ones. Number one is food. Now, that shouldn't surprise you because if you know anything about world religions, you know religions have a thing about food. Almost all religions have something to do with food except Christianity. We have nothing to do with food. There's no food laws. There's no food you cannot eat. And there's no food you're supposed to eat. None. Zero. Nada. But that's not the way it was with Jewish people. That's not the way it is with Buddhist people, with Hindu people, with Muslim people. Almost all people of our world today who are religious have food laws, which means there's things you can't eat at a potluck. And so here in this early church, were Jews that had very severe food laws and Gentiles, which didn't have them and ate very different things. And they're both in the same church. Well, we have potlucks because we're Baptists. After all, being Baptist means you eat. That's what it means, I think. And apart from other things, we have potlucks, but you couldn't have a potluck back then in the early church. And besides, when the church, early church gathered, they didn't have buildings like this. They met in people's homes and they always ate. They would never have a meeting without food. Never. But you can't eat together. Maybe you can have two tables or two sides and put a big wall in the middle. Jewish side, Gentile side. But that's ridiculous. You can't do that. They could not eat the same food. Besides that, they couldn't agree on what day to worship. Because the Jewish people said, God told us. How did he tell us? He took his very finger, God, and he wrote on stone tablets, you must worship me on the Sabbath. And the Jewish people said, it's a no-brainer. We worship on the Sabbath, Sabbath day. Now, that's the Jewish people in the church. The Gentiles said, um, we work on Saturdays. And besides, our Lord Jesus, who we worship as our Savior and our Messiah, he was resurrected on Sunday. So in commemoration of our Lord and Savior, let's... Let's worship on Sundays. The Jewish said, not on your life. We worship Saturday. No, we worship Sunday. And now, 600 years later, throw some Muslims in the mix. And they said, no, we worship on Friday. What do you do? You can't even agree on when you gather together. You can't agree on what you eat. Nor could they agree on what they drank. Back in that society, of course, the typical beverage would be wine. But typically, the wine that they drank had been offered to the gods, the pagan gods, before it went on the shelves in the grocery stores. Of course, they didn't have grocery stores. but And so the people said, well, we can't drink that. That, 
that wine has been infused with demons. You can't drink it. What do you do? You can't eat together. You can't figure out a day to worship together. You can't drink the same things. What are you going to do? That's a problem. And as I said before, it's not a problem for Americans. That's a zero problem. All we do as Americans is no problem. Jewish church there, Gentile church there. Sabbath worshipers here, Friday worshipers here, Sunday worshipers in that church. That's all we do. We just divide. But when you do that, what's lost? First of all, you never learn to love people who are different than you are. And you never learn to what, what's important to God. You think eating meat is important to God? You think he cares about that? You're nuts. He doesn't care about that. They're far more important things. And when you as Christians divide into church after church after church after church, who is the one who gets blamed? God. So what are you saying about God? And in Riverton, what are we saying about God by all these churches that we have? Many of them started, I hear, from this church. What does this say about God? You want to go join that group of people that splits over and over and over again about nothing substantive. I'll bet none of the splits were over anything substantive. Substantive, I mean that the clear doctrines of the church, the authority of the word of God, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith alone, etc. Those are substantive. But what you eat at a potluck is not substantive. And what day you worship is not substantive. And all kinds of issues which we're dividing over today, and it's going on and on and on, even today. What a, it's, it's, a, it's a horror to the name of Jesus. Paul wouldn't put up with it, nor would God. But how do you live in a body of Christ? How do you live together with a group of people where you disagree? You disagree about politics. You disagree about what foods you should eat. You disagree about movies you watch. You disagree about the music you like. You disagree about the masks you wear. You disagree about vaccinations. You disagree about a thousand things. What would we do? It's easy as Americans. Start a new church. That's all we do. You don't like the preacher? Go find one you do like. Simple. But what's lost? Jesus. Jesus is lost. The glory of God is lost. The unity of the body of Christ for which Jesus prayed fervently is lost. And after a while, we get smaller and smaller congregations until they die and die and die. That's what we get. Thankfully, God is the God of life and builds up new all the time. So how do you solve the problem? Well, we started in chapter 14, where he, talk, he introduces the topic of the weak and the strong. He doesn't talk about those who lift weights or play football. He's talking about the weak people are people who, who, who have, they have all kinds of scruples. Maybe they're new Christians. Maybe they're new Christians who came out of lives of, of deep, deep, maybe even demonic involvement. And so when they see that meat at a, at a potluck, they say, well, I can't eat that because that meat was probably offered to demons. So they can't eat it. Now, that meat may well have been offered to demons. And so those people think, you know, those little demons, they're little tiny things, and they go from that meat. And when you eat it, they go right inside of you and they destroy you. Well, that's not true. But do they think it's true? You better believe they do. And there's a called the weak. Or let's say you're Jewish. 
and you become Jewish and you recognize Jesus as your Messiah, but you still have all this teaching from the Old Testament about food and you come to a potluck and someone, someone brings shrimp cocktail. I love shrimp cocktail, but you can't eat it as a Jew. So what do you do? You're in trouble. And so you say, well, you, you, we shouldn't have shrimp cocktail at our potlucks because that's an unclean animal. And the other Gentiles say, what do you mean unclean? Sure tastes good to me. It's a problem. The people who had the scruples about not eating shrimp cocktail, he calls weak. But when those people see the shrimp cocktail and look at it and they go, I, I can't eat that. Well, there's nothing wrong with that shrimp cocktail. But for them, it is a problem. And if they ate it, they, they would feel that they're disobeying God. Those are called the weak. Now, what do those people tend to do with people who do eat shrimp cocktail or meat that may have been offered to idols or want to worship on Sunday rather than Saturday? Well, they tend to judge them. You people don't know the holy law of God. Well, now, on the other hand, the people that do eat shrimp and, and bacon with their eggs on Sunday morning, those people say, what's your problem, Dumbo? They look down their nose at them. You moron. You have problem eating bacon. What's your problem? It tastes good. It tastes good on everything. You see the problem? It's huge. And so in the first thing Paul says is, if you're among the weak, your problem is you're going to tend to be a judgmental person. You're going to judge people who don't agree with you. And if you're one that is called the strong, who you don't have any problem with what you eat or drink or days that you worship, you're going to tend to look down your nose at other people. And what a wonderful congregation it makes when part of the congregation is judging the others and the other part is looking down their nose at them. What is that called? I know what that's called. Hell. It's not called church. It's called hell. And God didn't want that. So Paul says, stop it. If you are, you need to learn to accept each other over things that we disagree on. In the matters, the, the Greek word is adiaphora, which means disputable matters. By the way, you may think I'm wrong, but I know you're wrong because <laughs> I'm among the strong, by the way. Um, God did not tell us who we should vote for or political affiliations or ideologies. That's not in the Bible. You can't find a chapter and verse. We have different opinions. And nowhere does Paul say, well, just become, let's have churches full of mealy-mouthed mouses. No, that's not a church. That's a nest of mouses. We don't want mice. We want men and women who have strong opinions, but we, we have a sense of priority. We know what's, what's more important than something else. We know that in disputable matters, we don't agree, and that is okay. It is horrible what is happening in our society today. It's horrible. If you don't agree with me, I cancel you. I hear it almost every day in the media. So a new, another movie star says, well, so-and-so won't do this, so I, will have, I cut them off. If there's ever an opportunity for us as Christians, this is it. We can be the people who say, no, no, we disagree politically. We disagree about all these things. But what we agree on is Jesus. And we set aside these disputable matters, and we do not create barriers. We tear down barriers because we believe in Jesus. And now he's going to end this passage by coming around to where he started. His first words were, accept one another. And now he's going to come back to that again. 
But he's going to now full put it. He said, that's why you, um, um, we use the acronym JOY. Jesus, others, and yourself. That's God's order. Not that we put ourselves down or have bad self-concept or bad self-esteem. No, no, that's not it. In fact, the Bible says you ought to look, uh, have sober judgment about yourself. Don't put yourself down. That's not called good self-esteem. That's called ridiculousness. That's not what God, God made us in his image. We're greatly worthy. Jesus Christ, God himself would die for us. Can you imagine how much we're worth? That's what we want to teach is how much we're worth as human beings. But if you really want to have joy and unity in the church, you're going to have to focus first of on Jesus. And then you have to remember that our goal is to build up other people, others, and then yourself. Well, let's see how God says it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, and we're going to look at the first 13 verses here. The first thing he's going to say is focus on the well-being of others. Look at what it says. This is verses one and two. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. So do you see the others there? There's the the O. We who are strong. Well, Paul puts himself in that category. He says, I am among those who are the strong. Though he is Jewish, He's fine with worshiping on Sunday. Though he is Jewish, he has no problem eating meat that has been offered to idols under certain circumstances. So he puts himself among the strong. And then he says, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't merely tolerate or put up with, but you uphold lovingly those who don't see things as yourself because your goal is not to please yourself. Your responsibility is to look out for the well-being of one another. That's what it means to be a Christian because we do not believe that this life is all there is. We believe that there's life eternal that will go on forever and ever. And our goal is to live our lives here so as to live a, a life full of joy and unity and peace and purpose here but for all eternity. So we don't have to focus on ourselves first because that's not all we have. We're here for each other. As Christians, we're called by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live beyond ourselves. Our purpose is to seek to build up one another in Christ. One of the life groups that I attend whenever I'm here, um, we're going through what are called the one another's in the New Testament. There are many of them. I think about a hundred. Love one another. Don't judge one another. Accept one another. My favorite one is found in Hebrews chapter 10. It's got two of them. Here's what it says. This is verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The part I like best about that is actually the words, let us consider. Actually, the words in Greek mean give very careful thought to. This is one of our, our, our responsibilities. As a Christian, give very careful thought to how you can build up 
one another. How can you help one, somebody else's life go forward in terms of love and good deeds? How can you carefully use your words, your life, your actions to encourage each other to go on with Jesus? That's our job. And that's a good job. What a way to live one's life. But you could say, um, okay, fine. How do we do that? Ah, he's going to answer that question next because now he's going to point to, and it's going to be the centerpiece of the passage. If you want to know what it's like to live your life, not to please yourself, but to build up other people, there's one place you look. Can you guess what it is? J, Jesus. Yes, that's what he says next. Look at verses three through six. For even Christ did not please himself. As it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. That's a quote from Psalm 69, 9. It says, um, people, actually, when Jesus died on the cross and people are screaming at him and yelling at him, and he's bearing the hostility of all these people who wanted him dead, crucify him, crucify him. Really, their hostility was against God. And what did Jesus do? He took there all this hostility, and people are still doing it. I, I can't, I'm stunned at how often I hear Jesus' name every single day in curses. It's, it's just a given in our society. Every TV program, everyone, they'll use Jesus' name. I guess he's that good that people remember him all the time, but in such a terrible way. It, it's basically hostility toward God. And what did he do? He didn't turn around and show his hostility toward us. Instead, he absorbed all this hostility toward God. Why? Because he didn't live his life for himself. He lived his life to bring us to God. Well, look what it says then. It goes on. The passage of scripture goes on. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Then it says, may the God, this is a little prayer. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, we need to accept each other, not judge each other, not condemn each other when we disagree on things that are disputable. Why? Well, when we do so, we're simply following Jesus. That's how he lived his life. And his purpose was to, to, to glorify God. His purpose was to bring together a group of people who are very different, Jews and Gentiles from around the world, from a huge number of different cultures and everything else, and bring us into one body. That was his goal. Now, um, have, have you noticed uh, in the scriptures over and over again how everything focuses on Jesus? The Bible, fill, fill in. Um, fill in the blank and see how you know your Bible. We love because he first loved us. So God doesn't say, okay, just get out there and love. No, because we don't have the capacity to love. Because our, as human beings, our foremost gut default mode is to live for ourselves. Selfishness is our default mode. But we love 
Not because we're such loving people, but we love because we are the recipients of the love of God. While we were such good people, innocent, and just loving to follow God. No, while we were enemies, while we hated God's guts, he died for us. We love because he first loved us. Fill in the blanks with this one. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. God's word doesn't say, just forgive. Over and over again, it says, forgive because you have been forgiven. The Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And why... When people do something wrong to you, it's almost inhuman to forgive them because they can't, if they've done something terrible to us, they can't repay it. But we have done things to God that we could never pay back, never. And he forgave us. Forgive as you have been forgiven. This is the verse, fill in the blanks. This is the main verse in the gospel of Mark. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Why do we serve? Well, because we have been served. That's why Jesus came here to serve us and to give his life for us. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, just after his resurrection, the very day of his resurrection, there were two people who didn't, ident- who didn't recognize him because God kept them from it. And it said he started to explain how everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. There's a well-known preacher who, um, who said this is how he puts together his messages. I thought it was so crazy, but I really liked it. He says, and this is what we should do when we study the Bible. First thing to remember is God did not write the Bible to you. He didn't write it to me. He wrote it to the people who first received it. Like, for example, The book of Romans was written to the Roman Christians in the year 57 AD. That's who it was written to. So that's why when we read the Bible, we have to try to figure out what did God try to say to the Romans in 57 AD. From that, you can derive principles, normative principles, because what he said to them, because God is timeless and we're all pretty much the same, he would say to us, there are differences in culture, but the principles are the same. So what would he say to us? What's the principle? What are the commands of God? What does he want us to do? And then this famous preacher said, my third step is whatever that principle is, whatever God's word commands you to do, you can't do it. And that's where we mess up with Christianity. Christianity basically is turned into religion or moralism for most people. God's word says do this. Now go out and do it. And as I've said before, good luck, turkeys. Good luck. The problem is we don't do it and we can't do it. And so this preacher said, my, the main focus of my sermon is how we cannot do what God has asked us to do. Point number four, there is one person who did do it. That's Jesus. And now, Number five, in the power of Jesus, Holy Spirit, go forth and do it. But do you see how different that is? See, the power doesn't come from us. It comes from the Holy Spirit, from Jesus. 
Because if all we say to people as, as pastors is, okay, here's what God says, go do it. We're not going to get very far. I know I don't get very far either. You see, Jesus is the centerpiece of all of it. And if you want to know how to put other people first, look at Jesus. Well, we got to the others. We got to the Jesus. Now verses, verse 7 says this. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Why? Why did he accept us? He didn't have to do that. What's his purpose? What's his plan? What's he up to? Why would Jesus do what he did? Died on the cross for our sins, was raised again from the dead. Why would he do that? He wants to bring us to God. He wants to bring us into a relationship with God for all eternity. That's why he did it. Jesus, others, and you. Well, what does that produce? This is how the passage ends. This is what it produces. This is verse um, 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And now he's going to quote Old Testament passages from the historical books, from the poetic books, from the prophetic books, all of them, to show the whole Old Testament. And this is what God said in the Old Testament. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. These are in the Old Testament. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy. There it is. And peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he ends. What's God up to? Well, God's up to producing a community of people on this earth who know that we have been loved at the cost of the life of Jesus Christ, who though we're different, we're different socioeconomically, we're different racially, we're different culturally, we have different languages, we have different um, politics, different ideologies, different all these things. But those are, those are peripheral. What we have in common is Jesus and God the Father. God, the Holy Spirit. And God is in the business of trying to pull all these diverse people together into one body so that our praise goes to God. Our testimony to the world is that our God is bigger than all these differences that we have. And that group one day will include people from every single language groups that's ever existed. We'll all be together. And guess what will happen with our differences? They'll be gone. They won't matter anymore at all. So let me conclude this passage on, um, on how do we deal with people with whom in the body of Christ who are not like us. Unity amidst diversity. Let me summarize. Number one, we must all stand together on the matters that are indisputable. 
There is no room, no room for disagreement on certain matters. Because if you disagree on certain matters, you are not authentically Christian. What are those matters? Well, almost every, every denomination, every single place in the whole world today, everywhere, is saying this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And on it goes. That's called the Apostles' Creed. Catholic churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, and Protestant churches, by the millions everywhere in the world, are saying that this day, maybe at this very minute. Those, that's Christianity. Christianity believes in the authority of the Word of God the final complete authority of the world of God. We don't have dispute on that one because if you throw away the word of God, you have nothing. The church has never disagreed on the deity, the full deity and the full humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that we're saved by grace through faith. These are fun, that that we believe in in a Trinitarian one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are not disputable matters. These are things we all must agree. But there are many matters about which we disagree, and that's okay. In fact, it's good that we disagree because God isn't into monothink. He's not into people who are just mealy-mouthed and mushy. He wants strong people who disagree, but we we disagree in love. We disagree by accepting one one another, not judging one another, not condemning one another, and all these things that God has tried to teach us to do. We get along. Why? For the glory of God. Well, I'm going to end with a story that actually happened. And I hope I haven't told this one to you. I forget what I've said before. Um, In the church, I was at a church in Colorado where I pastored for 26 years. We had a a pretty diverse crew in that church. I was in Boulder County, as you can imagine. Um, And uh, there was this man in our church. He was a pretty new believer. But every single Sunday, he came to church wearing a baseball cap. Now, I don't see, oh, good, no baseball caps here today. Well, he'd wear a baseball cap, and I think he'd usually turn it backwards. And he'd reset right over there where you are, Shanna. Um, And he would get looks, and he would get remarks. You know, he'd walk in with his baseball cap, and he'd wear it the whole service. And uh, people would look at him, and some say, if someone wore a baseball cap, okay, come on, be honest, here backwards and wore it through the whole service, what's the, what are you going to call that? What is it wearing a baseball cap in church is? <laughs> Thank you, of course, it's disrespect. All of us know that. And so he wore it, everyone looked at him really funny, and many told him, that's disrespectful. Well, I happen to know him. His name was Matt Goldstein. He's Jewish. And I don't know why I did this, I, but I did it during the service. I, don't, I think I might have been on this passage of Scripture. I don't remember. But I went over. He sat right over there, and I went to him. I said, Matt, what is on your head? And I didn't tell him I was going to do this. This is my baseball cap. I said, don't you know that's disrespectful in a church? He said, no. I said, he said, people, and I said this, when you see this man here with a baseball cap in church, what do you think? Tell me out loud. 
disrespectful. They started to shout it. Disrespectful. So then I said, Matt, could you please tell us why you wear a baseball cap in church? He said, I'm Jewish. And don't you know that for a Jewish person to be in the presence of God with their head uncovered is the most disrespectful thing you can ever do in all of life. And it was unbelievable. Everyone went, (gasps) because here was a man who out of respect for God was wearing a baseball cap. Whereas other people thought the wearing of a baseball cap in church was disrespectful. He wore it because of his respect for God. And guess what? No one ever criticized him again. And he kept wearing his baseball cap. I didn't know if anyone else did it, but I almost thought about wearing one myself because I've been many times to Israel at the Wailing Wall. And you can't walk up to the Wailing Wall without a yarmulke. Why? For Jewish people to be in the presence of God, you have to have your head covered. And this was his expression of his his respect for God. And another people in the same church took it as the exact opposite. And who's right? Both. And who's wrong? Well, if he judged people who didn't wear hats, he's wrong. But if we condemned him for wearing a hat, we're wrong. Be careful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible love for us. The broadness of your wisdom, the depth of your love, the way that you make our lives here on this planet so meaningful, even fun. How you've taught us to to, to live our lives through Jesus. And I pray that we could do that better all the time by the power of your Holy Spirit, without whom we would be a mess. But with you, we have everything we need for life and godliness. So we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand with me as we leave this day. And uh, um, we get to leave this place. And I, I trust that one of the messages we will leave with from this passage, these passages in Romans is, let us be agents of unity in the body of Christ. What a, what a great opportunity we have, even with people who, who aren't Christians, not to divide over politics, over these other things that are secondary, but to show in a world that's so polarized that Jesus loves everybody. God bless you.